You're listening to the Sit Down Standout Show, the podcast that gives people with all abilities and challenges a chance to stand out from the rest. Whether you've dealt with physical issues, overcome tremendous traumas, or deal with mental health challenges on a daily basis, in a judgment-free zone, we share your story of adapting and overcoming to stand out from the rest. I'm the Rolling Dragon, Ben and Dykstra, and this is the Sit Down Standout Show. Ladies and gentlemen, you're listening to the Sit Down Standout Show, the podcast that gives people with all abilities and challenges the chance to stand out from the rest, even if you have to sit down to do it. I am the Rolling Dragon, Ben and Dykstra, and the guest that I have with me for our final episode of It's a New Year, Here Are New Ways to Look After Your Health, is no exception. He is a man that has found safety with going to the gym. And not only did it save him in the mental health sense, but it motivated him, motivated him to keep going after surviving getting shot at a shady strip club. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome what can only be described as a walking, talking miracle in Brian Rizzo. Brian, how are you? Good. How are you doing today? I'm doing pretty good. It's snowing outside my window, but otherwise we're doing pretty good. Yeah, they're telling us out here in Portland we're supposed to be getting snow, but it's it's just a little bit above freezing, so not quite yet. Oh, yeah, we've had snowstorms for the last two days in Canada. Yeah, it's a little bit colder up there. <laughs> so to get things started, um, how did your fitness journey begin? Because I've been watching a couple of your videos online, and you talked about how going to the gym was essential for your mental health beginning at the age of 13. Yeah, I started lifting with uh, the wrestling coach in junior high. After the wrestling season, he he started like a before school lifting program. But we had this old like 1980s weight machine, and then he brought dumbbells from home, and and uh, that's how we were working out. But the bug kind of bit of uh, a love for doing it. And then in high school, I was kind of on and off of being serious about it. The the weightlifting program at the high school I went to was not very great. The teacher of it didn't do a very good job of teaching proper form, the whole idea of it. And I actually partied a ton in high school until my junior year. I had a friend overdose on Oxycontin and I kind of decided to get more serious about lifting with the dream of eventually competing in world's strongest man, which, which didn't happen, but I was told that powerlifting was a good start in a strong man. And there was a gym that was in Oregon city who, which is actually closed now because it got hit by the COVID lockdown. But I started working out there after I graduated from high school in 2006, because it was supposed to be one of the top powerlifting gyms in the area and I was like a like a small fish in a big pond because there was a lot of monsters there but I trained with some of the best in the world I trained with uh, Adrian Larson who at one time had been the second best bencher in the world at 220 and so I've learned a lot from from people at that gym on on how to prepare for for competitions in proper form and and even diet and things like that right because it's one thing to go to the gym and lift a couple of weights and get the adrenaline rush of oh wow I hit a new amount today i lifted about 20 to 40 to 50 pounds whatever but if you're not doing it right all you're going to do is injure yourself yeah form form is like such an amazing thing where you even like i mean like i said man i was like a like a small fish in a big pond there's a lot of guys who are lifting heavier than me but as you but they're nice enough to teach form because injury is so i mean i've injured myself being kind of lazy or doing things incorrectly i have quite a few injuries from competing but but yeah learn how to do things properly is the most important thing because like I said, you may start off being kind of maybe one of the weaker people in the gym, but after you get your form down, you might start being one of the better ones there. Right. And you worked your way up to the point where your strongest lift was, I believe, 605 pounds. 
I did left at 675 uh, just a little bit before I got shot. Oh, wow. That is quite a lot of weight. I, I think that kind of puts you in an elite level of lifters. Yeah, it was okay. Um, if you if you look at some of the videos, some of the top lifters, I mean, there's guys that are that are breaking a thousand pounds on deadlift, so it was it was all right. I was happy with it, but it wasn't like top in the world lifting. Well, I mean, you're definitely lifting more than the average person going to the gym. Let's say that. Yeah, that was more than the average person. So eventually, you wind up getting to that level of strength, and then an opportunity comes up for you to become a bouncer. What kind of intrigued you to getting that position? And what was it about being a bouncer that you liked? Well, when the club was opening in 2009 and a friend from the gym was the one who was opening it. He was one of the owners when it first opened and I was unemployed at the time. He was looking for bouncers and that's how I ended up getting the job to to bounce because I was unemployed at the time and a friend was opening the club and I was big and stupid. So that's exactly what people want to see when they go into strip club. Right. Why not work with your friends when you've got uh, no job at the moment? Yeah. So you eventually wind up working at this club for a while. I believe it was called the Phoenix Gentlemen's Club. Uh, it was called Mystic. Oh, I'm sorry. Mystic Gentlemen's Club. Yeah. So you work at this club for a while. And I remember you talking in one of your videos that it was a rather gray world. Because on the one hand, you're doing your job of helping customers feel safe in a bar and in a strip club, taking out people who are rude, disrespectful, might have been overserved. But at the same time, I believe you said that there were drugs involved. Oh, yeah. I mean, you get into you get into basically I was in the sex industry, you get in the sex industry and drugs are going to be flowing like water. I mean, uh, Oxycontin and cocaine was just constantly flowing like water. One of the top uh, cocaine dealers in Portland was allowed to do their business at the club. And so I helped them move their product. And And I got into dealing steroids myself is what I got into when I was there. And it's uh, one of those things where you just get sucked into the gray world of doing things. And you have a lot of people who kind of work like the regular nine to five who are regulars at the club and they're doing, jumping into the underworld as well. So yeah, it's kind of a, you kind of start seeing the reality of, of the world that we live in when you work in, in the strip club industry. Now, given that you talked about you had a friend that overdosed on Oxycontin, did you think about that before you made the choice to help deal in all those things at the strip club? Uh, I didn't really. It's like I said, it's such a it's such a gray area because these people that were were dealing these drugs or were also willing to stand beside me in fights and everything like that. So it's kind of hard for me to sit here and past judgment on somebody who's willing to risk their life to make sure that I made it home that night. I mean, like I said, it's not really a black and white world. It's kind of a gray area that you walk in. Right, because at the same time, when you're helping do with that kind of stuff, you can make a decent amount of money. Plus, these guys have helped you out in some pretty tight situations, so it's not like I could rat them out just for trying to make more money. Right. So eventually, one night, you are working your usual shift at a bar, or at the strip club, and then a angry drug dealer or angry drug addict who was homeless comes into the bar and is misbehaving. So you do your job, you take him out because he's looking for a fix. And one thing we know about any anyone who is addicted to drugs is they don't behave like their normal selves when they're going through withdrawals or if they're in the need for that particular fix. They're willing to do some absolutely off-the-wall stuff just to get it. So eventually you kick him out, but later 
right as your uh, co-worker is going to show up a little early for his shift, the drug addict comes in and shoots you in the head. So unfortunately, you are convulsing at that point, and you're in the struggle for your life. When you... It's hard to describe going through that situation, whether you're just looking from the outside or if you are the victim of that incident. But when you first kind of regained consciousness, what was your thought? Well, uh, it was so crazy because I was uh, taken to a manual hospital. I was put into a chemically induced coma. I was in a coma for 31 days. So it's kind of waking up after being in a coma for 31 days. I had lost close to 100 pounds and I had been having things similar to seizures. So I've been spasming a ton and they had like cord, all these kinds of cords attached to me, monitoring anything you could possibly think of. And so they had to strap me into the bed. So I wake up with my brain swollen, part of my skull missing, and I can't see very well because I'm having to do rehab to get my eyes moved correctly. And I was just completely confused where I was. And and it's kind of hard to describe it because it's kind of like a blur of memories uh, at that time until things kind of start stabilizing. Right, because if you look at the human brain like a computer, when you got shot, that sent your brain to crash because it took a major amount of damage. So while you're in a coma and while your brain is swollen, the doctors are trying to help you. Your brain is trying to recalibrate, basically, to try to understand what the heck happened. Yeah, it's so crazy, too, over all these uh, tests I had to do to kind of figure out, like, learn what the parts of the brain are in charge of. And part of my brain that took the damage is the one that's in charge of remembering the names, which is on, I was shot, is in the left side is where the bullet entered. And the same part on the right side, your brain is in charge of remembering details. So I could sit there and describe something, but I could not remember what it was called. And it was really hard to communicate uh, when my brain was swollen. It was kind of depressing for a little while. Well, that's completely understandable to go from kind of living a normal existence as a bouncer, making decent money, and then working out at the gym to, I don't remember names of my friends. I, I've lost so much weight because 100 pounds, you do not lose that overnight. That's over months of just being hooked up to machines and fed whatever they feed you while you're in a coma, which is basically fluids. Right. So actually, as we're recording this, it's been about 10 years since the event of your shooting. So when you are trying to recover, you mentioned that you had to go back to your parents' house. Were your, were your parents, who were some of your biggest supporters that helped you after the incident? Uh, There's a lot of people that were super supportive. Uh, Jeanette, uh, Bill and Becca Spain. Uh, my friend who had been the owner of the gym who hired me had his own personal problems. The club couldn't get a liquor license, so he ended up having to basically get bought out. And so they brought in Bill Spain to be head of security. And Bill taught me so much about how to do the job correctly. And his wife, Becca, was absolutely amazing. And kind of, I ended up living with them. She's kind of the head of the household. So Bill has been like just super supportive through the whole thing. He came and saw me on one of my dreams was in the coma. He was in one of my coma dreams. He was the only person that I knew there's any of the dreams that I had was in the coma. So he's been like him and his wife have been absolutely amazingly supportive of me. And then everyone at the gym was like super supportive of me too. Very encouraging and nothing but positive things to say when I first got back in the gym. And it was very helpful at, at trying to not just kind of better myself physically, but just mentally and emotionally being able to come to terms with everything that I've been through. Right. 
And that is absolutely amazing to think that even in, like, again, we talked about working in the strip club being a very gray world. Even though you may have been doing some questionable activities at the strip club, you were also doing a fairly understandable profession as a bouncer, and getting shot would traumatize anyone. But everyone has been so supportive of you. That's incredible. Yeah, it was really nice. I wouldn't, I wouldn't have guessed it because the when you when you balance it, whether you use a strip club or at a bar, you're basically an adult babysitter, and it's so many years of just of just having to babysit people. There was a a man who was a regular at the gym who bounced for a long time himself told me that you kind of get like dirt on your soul. And he's right that you kind of do, you kind of start seeing the world differently. And, and uh, you kind of, uh, you're always waiting to get into a conflict with somebody when you see him because you're just so used to having to babysit people for so many years. So it's kind of mind blowing to see so many people were cared about me and so many people were going to be so supportive and help me uh, come back from what I've been through. I think that's also kind of a good sign, too, that even though you may have had a little dirt on your soul, people saw you as a good guy that was doing his job. Yeah. So the first thing you wanted to do as soon as you got out of the hospital was to get back to the gym to try yes. to rebuild yourself, sort of like the $6 million man. We can rebuild him. But um, what exactly... I know you had to start slowly, but how has exercise played a part from before you got shot to after you got shot? Uh, well, the gym was kind of always a place I could go to uh, no matter what. Uh, whenever, no matter how your life is going, the gym is never going to lie to you. 100 pounds today is going to be 100 pounds tomorrow. And no matter what's going on outside the gym, you can at least go and escape it at the gym. And in my head, when I, uh, I got out of the rehab hospital, I thought that if I went back to the gym and got back in the shape I've been before, I'd be able to have the life I had before I got shot, not knowing that I'll I'll never be able to have the life I had before, nor will I ever be the person that I was before everything happened. But the gym is is as close as I can get to who I was before everything happened. The gym's never going to let me down. I knew that it was a place I could go and and uh, recover from what I've been through. I've had I've had quite a few injuries lifting. I've dislocated my right shoulder four times. I've separated my left hip and I've torn my bicep and I've come back from those. So. In my head, I knew that going to the gym won't let me down. I'll be able to come back again, thinking I'd be who I was before, but but having to come to terms with the fact that I won't be who I was before everything happened. Yeah. Um, go, I could understand the idea that you would find safety in a gym because exercise can be found in so many different ways. You don't necessarily have to pay money to go to a gym and to lift. You've just got to find a way to make your environment kind of a gym. And use your use what's around you to kind of get exercise. And then when you get that endorphin rush after a workout, there's nothing like it. Yeah. Even even when you even when you show up to work out, whatever you're doing for your workout and you're tired and maybe you don't want to do it, it's amazing how much better you feel when you get done. Yeah, I can tell you so many stories of when I went to the gym and I was like, oh, I don't feel like doing it. The weather sucks outside. But then as soon as you're done, you're 60 minutes, you're like, all right, let's go again. Yeah. Hey, my fellow standouts, it's the Rolling Dragon, Ben and Dykstra, here to ask you a couple of questions as we've reached the halfway point in our program. Has life thrown you a curveball? Have you lived with what many people would consider unfortunate circumstances or unique challenges? How have you turned them around into something positive for yourself and for others? Is it your time to stand out from the rest? Well then, 
register as a guest at www.rollingdragonmedia.com and get ready to stand out from the rest. And now, for the rest of our story. So when you were trying to get back in the gym, when you got back to working out and trying to rebuild yourself, when how soon was it that you realized, okay, I'm going to have to make some changes? I was pretty quickly into it. One of the... Excuse me. One of the main issues is the damage to the left side of your brain physically affects the right side of your body. When I was in the coma, my left side was spasming really badly, and my right side wasn't moving at first. And so, kind of one of the early guesses was that I wasn't going to have any movement on my right side. My right side started spasming after a while in the coma, but nowhere near as hardly as the left side. And when I got back in the gym, there was like a huge imbalance between sides where the right side was much weaker. It got tired faster. And so, I just started doing a lot more uh, dumbbell, a lot more hammer strength where each side's independent. Anything I could do to to make sure that the right side is working and not being corrected by the left side. Right. And that's not going to heal immediately. There's going to probably be a part of that that's affected for the rest of your life because unfortunately, it's not exactly possible to repair that amount of brain damage. No, I mean, when, when your brain's dead, your brain's dead. It's not going to start uh, regrowing or anything like that. It's kind of gone for the rest of your life. However, you still have managed to get back into some level of shape compared to before you got shot. You still have been able to get back in the gym to a different degree. You've just had to make some adjustments. Yeah, exactly. It's, uh, it's kind of changing. I have to kind of come to terms with the fact that I can't really do powerlifting anymore. Uh, my head can't really take the stress of it. I don't know if anybody's doing when you I don't know if you ever competed in powerlifting, but you take kind of like a huge deep breath and then you go for your max on whatever the lift is and you get lightheaded and things like that. My head just can't take that kind of pressure. So I kind of changed it up to do more of a bodybuilding style to kind of build a more of a physique and a look is what I've been going for to try and help other people who suffer from PTSD or traumatic brain injury to show them that you can still accomplish things in their lives. So now that it's been about 10 years since the incident, how are you feeling now? How, how has your life been since that? Uh, well, it's been a struggle, actually. Uh, I've been denied handicapped Social Security four times. I have a really hard time doing a job, so I was actually homeless for a little while until a friend helped me find somewhere to live, which I am now, and, and uh, just trying to find places to go speak. The COVID lockdown kind of put a stop to me being able to speak at places. And so just trying to find a place to go and help others who are suffering from PTSD, traumatic brain injury, and depression, or if you're having a hard time with all three, just to show them that there's strength inside you and that God has a plan for you, no matter how hard it is right now, just understand that God has a plan for you and you can make it through and there's more strength inside you than you know. Absolutely. And when you're in the moment of going through something like a traumatic brain injury, you can't see that. You can't automatically think, oh, no, I'm going to get through this. God has a plan, all of that. In the moment, you don't think that. You think survival. You think, okay, this sucks right now, but we can come up with a plan. Yeah. Yeah, it's really hard, especially when your brain is swollen, depending on where uh, what part of your brain it is, to be able to communicate clearly. And sometimes you start getting judgment. You have people trying to tell you just to get over it or trying to tell you they've been through worse than you. And so you you got to kind of try and uh, stop talking to those people, get them out of your life and surround yourselves by people who may not have been through what you've been through, but are still want to offer you support for for what it is you're trying to do. Well, we definitely support 100% what you're doing because, like, 
someone like myself who was born with cerebral palsy and someone like you who has survived a traumatic brain injury and a traumatic event can do so much inspiration for other people just by talking to them. Yeah. So out of curiosity, I know it was a traumatic event getting shot and I know that your life has been somewhat permanently affected, but is there anything about your past that you miss sometimes? Um, there's people, it's kind of hard to say, uh, that you miss things. I mean, the world, the world changes. Um, if you just sit and reflect on your life, you'll see that there's different chapters in your life and things change. I worked at the club at the time I was supposed to work there and the people were who they were at that time for it to be a, a great work environment it became like family the people I worked with, but we're not the same people anymore and it's not the same environment it used to be. And so it's kind of hard to sit here and say that I miss things. I mean, they happen when they're supposed to happen, but you got to kind of stay positive and start and start looking for the future and have plans for, for where you're going to go. Right. I, I think one thing that we would all miss is we don't necessarily miss like all the people. We don't necessarily miss all of the environments, but we miss the moments that we had. Like, yeah, I miss my college partying days, but I don't miss how I felt afterwards. Yeah. <laughs> so what are some of your goals for the future and what are you doing now? Uh goal for the future is trying to find places to speak, to help other people, as I said, who suffer from uh some of the effects that I have of PTSD, traumatic brain injury, and depression. Um, posting videos on on uh TikTok and Instagram to try and help them out uh so they can see that they can accomplish things. And so uh just find a place to speak and then uh, I found someone who's going to be writing my story, Tiffany LaRue, or uh, Teresa LaRue is going to be writing uh, my story. So be be able to work with her and, and get a book written to try and help other people. That's excellent. Shout out to Teresa LaRue, who's also been a guest on my podcast, sharing her story of surviving domestic violence. Yes, her book is is an incredible story that she has. Yes, we have links to that below in our show archives, My Rock, My Hard Place. You can pick up a copy of her book anywhere books are sold. So before we start to wind down, um, what advice would you give to anyone who is either trying to find their sense of peace in exercise like you did or anyone who has been through a traumatic brain injury? Um, you just, you just got to find, you got to find positive people to help you out. You got to find people who are willing to bring something into your life. Uh, if you're going to the gym, if you're not going to compete in anything, then don't, don't worry so much about what your one rep max is because you can seriously just correct form and it can add a huge amount to your, to your one rep max it's really not important. And, and I would say that if you're, if you're just trying to be healthier than, then go in there and hit it up, you have so much information available to you. Uh, I'm friends with Chris Duffin, who is the founder of Kabuki Strength. You can use their app. The Kabuki Strength app can give you all kinds of information, ideas on how to train, get diet down and things like that. So I would say don't worry so much about your max if you're just starting out and don't worry about judgment from other people because that's not worth it. You just got to surround yourselves by people who may not have been through what you've been through or maybe don't have the same life as you, but are still want to offer you support that you're looking for. Right. And the right amount of support can mean the difference between success and failure. Absolutely. Sometimes, sometimes who you know can get you a lot farther than the skills you have, actually. Yeah. And I remember watching one of your uh, videos. I believe it was a speaking engagement where you talked about how 
it wasn't even a person that was helpful to you, even though there were helpful people, but a dog was so helpful getting you through the mental health struggles of trying to recover. Yeah. So if anyone wants to book you for a speech engagement, wants to contact you to ask you a question, how could people reach out to you? Uh, you can contact me on Instagram or TikTok or Facebook. I'll send you my links if you can get them posted up. Well, we'll have all of your links in the show notes below. Brian, it has been a pleasure to hear your story and to see that while you may have come out on the other side with a few scars, you've still come out on the other side as a new and what I would think to be a better person. I appreciate you having me on your show, man. Well, it was a pleasure to have you. And that's going to wrap it up for this week's edition of the Sit Down Standout Show. He is Brian Rizzo. I am the Rolling Dragon, Ben and Dykstra. And until next time, keep calm and roll on.